this belief in sound as a conduit of holy power means that the manipulation of musical sound can acquire an unusual kind of force. So that when we're talking about a modulation, we're not just talking about modulation, we're talking about literal, like, elevation. Welcome back to Sound Expertise. I'm your host, Will Robin, and this is a podcast where I talk to my fellow music scholars about their research and why it matters. The phrase musical analysis conjures a certain kind of image. A lone scholar with their score in pencil, identifying chords in a Bach prelude or tone rows in a Weber miniature. The academic work itself is, is fairly abstract. In trying to understand the inner workings of some great masterpiece, music becomes a kind of puzzle, a riddle to be solved. But the richness of much music lies not in such cerebral exercises, but in the visceral impact it makes in live performance. This is particularly the case with sacred music, in which what is played and heard in a place of worship is designed to provide some immediate, even divine impact on its participants and draw a community together in song. Analyzing religious music requires a different set of tools, then, to understand how it moves not just the mind, but also the spirit and the body. That is the aim of my guest today, Braxton Shelley, an assistant professor of music at Harvard, whose fascinating scholarship focuses on gospel music, and specifically what he calls the gospel imagination. How the inner workings of gospel songs, the vamps and chords heard in a church service, facilitate moments of profound religious experience. Professor Shelley is a minister and musician as well as a musicologist, and his work is increasingly recognized as vital to the field today. In the week before we spoke, his 2019 article, Analyzing Gospel, won major prizes from both the American Musicological Society and the Society for Ethnomusicology, and his book will be out soon with Oxford University Press. I hope you learn as much from this conversation as I did. Let's start maybe with, uh, uh, you know, I've been reading a lot of your work and, and an important component of the gospel tradition that's a subject of some of your, your analyses, um, which is this idea of tuning up that you write about, um, this moment of transition from, from speech to song. Can you talk a little bit about like what tuning up is as both a, a musical process and also as a religious process? Sure. Well, the idea of tuning up it comes out of practice, right? It's this moment of inflection where one moves from one dimension of musicality, from one level of sort of the sermon or song to another. And this transition is always emphatic, right? Like it's not so. The point is for it to arrest attention and foment movement, right, between, um, really between the material world and what people call the spiritual realm. Um, and so both as 
Um, so the formal technical device, kind of discernible, like musical fact, if you will, right? But also, um, I think it's evidence of, right, a conception of what the world is or what worlds are, how things are connected, which is to say that, right, you need something to occasion movement, mm. right, between a material world and a spiritual realm if you believe that those, that both planes are available for experience, right? Um, and so that's how you get this aesthetic, right, where you can't separate the, the expression from the belief that um, sort of sustains it, that ends up being also sustained by the practice and, yeah. Um, so you see it across the tradition, sermons, songs, prayers, right, this moment, right, of switching, this moment of going in. And there are lots of names, you know, for preaching in particular, hooping or, you know, or uh, closing or, you know, um, often kind of gerunds, right, to sort of indicate the ongoingness. Um, but you also notice it in in the, the gospel song, especially the gospel choir repertory, right? This really like striking moment where everything before it, right, is transcendent. And that's what I try to show um, in various pieces of writing. I think that the forthcoming book makes that even more clear. Um, there's a whole chapter on tuning up that is then sort of woven through the following chapters, right? How tuning up um, reveals a belief about time, how tuning up transforms text, how tuning up, you know, ought being uh, understood in terms of an analytic for the music. Hmm. Yeah. So like in, I don't know, maybe a representative tuning up moment or at least some of the moments that you've written about, like what is, what is happening musically um, with, you know, the, the singers, with the choir, with, with what's happening. Yeah. Just, just kind of tell me a little bit more about, about what, what we might hear in that kind of moment and how you analyze that too. Got it. Well, my favorite song, I think, in the gospel choir repertory is by Brenda Joyce Morris, a song entitled Perfect Praise. Some folks call it How Excellent, because that's the um, sort of most often repeated word. Um, and the song has three units, A, B, C sections. And um, at the end of the B section's second iteration, right, like the closing tonic, the closing one, it gets transformed into a secondary dominant, right? Five, four, two, or four. It's really easy to do, right? Just take the bass down a whole step, B flat to D flat. And all of a sudden, right, the like emblem of musical repose and musical stability gets remade, right? Into this, you know, extraordinarily unstable sonority that's gotta move, that's gotta go somewhere. And so it becomes the first section in the song to start anywhere but one. And at the same time, you have this, um, in, in the choir part, the hook is interrupted. Um, there's normally like a measure between the end of the hook and the starting of the next section or the repetition of the same section. But here, the tenors come in a half measure early. And then instead of starting on the downbeat, they start on the end of three. With this really sort of, you know, uh, emphatic line. Um, and the texture changes. In the song, you've had unison, you've had 
um, homophony, uh, but um, and there's like one one note where you get a kind of polyphonic thing happening, but the vamp is completely polyphonic, and the vamp is formed through textual accumulation. So the first time through the vamp, only the tenors sing, right? So you get all these concomitant turns happening. The one becomes five, four, two, one. The tenors come in a half beat early, they come in all this syncopated thing, all of a sudden there are no altos, no sopranos, just the tenors belting, right? And the combined effect of that, right? I think it, it, it makes a shift occur. Another, another one is uh, Walter Hawkins is marvelous. And at the end, I, I love to talk about this example because at the end of that song's B section, they, they turn, um, they turn um, really the sort of title lyric, What a Marvelous Thing, in such a way that you could think that this was going to be the map, just the repetition of that. But all of a sudden, when they decide to to cadence, right? Instead of going from two to five, back to two to five. When they decide to go to one, the choir is silent. And the choir's abrupt silence speaks loudly, right? And, and at the same time, the soloist, the composer of Bishop Walter Hawkins, he, instead of singing, he hums, right? So he reaches for another linguistic register um, and again, you get this movement in the bass to flat seven, so that the one becomes five, four, two, four. Um, so again, this sort of combined mm. effect makes for a really forceful movement. So Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I find really striking in the way that you you kind of construct your analyses is that you're constantly moving between the kind of musical detail that that you were just talking about and emphasizing like the embodied experience and like participatory components and like that it's something is is happening to the people participating. Can you talk a little bit about like how you analyze that like those and how you feel those moments like as both something to analyze musically, but also something to analyze like sp spiritually? Sure. Um, I think one of the most important uh, books I read in grad school um, was uh, Harry Berger's uh, Stance, uh, Ideas for the Study of Expressive Culture. I think, that, I think that's a post-colonic title. Um, and it gave me useful language, right? Just for right, talking about the intensity and specificity with which gospel congregants attend to gospel sound, right? 
For me, the most important word in the book is not stance, but it's grapple, right? Now he does his magisterial and really, I think, lucid and really clear movement through Searle and other sort of phenomenologists um, to give you a sense, right, of, you know, musical experience, the degree in which it can be focused, shaped, sort of, you know, can become kind of habit. Um, but the word grapple, right? I remember reading it and thinking, this is exactly what I want to talk about. Um, this grappling, this... This approach to sound as a vehicle, right? Right, not simply um, audited, right? But uh, sound embodied. Uh, and embodied in an interworldly way, hmm. right? Interworldly as in like between the, the divine and, and the, the everyday, interesting. Right, the world of, you know, ordinary sense and the world that though invisible is not immaterial, right? Yeah. Um, so actually, I st it's not so much moving from analysis to that. I think mm -hmm. I start with the question of what the music is doing. Right. And who's doing it for. And that actually helps me to know what to notice, to know what's important, to know, like, among all the observations I can make, what's worth pointing out. And then to, to figure out how that's working musically is kind of the, I guess, the, the nitty gritty. It's interesting. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's like, if I think about, I don't know, like generic analysis of like a Beethoven symphony, I suppose that's what people are doing. Like they're listening to their favorite moments and trying to figure out why they're their favorite. But it's also like the, the embodied component of what you're doing is so, like, it's just so tied. You can't, yeah, I mean, it, you can't really separate one from the other. Um, can you, you, you talk about tuning up as, as the sonic manifestation of, of what you call the gospel imagination. I was just like constantly underlining things that I wanted to ask you about. Can you talk a little bit about this idea of like, how do you, how you see this phrase, the gospel imagination and, and, and how, how music relates to it or the, the analysis you're doing relates to it? Sure. I mean, in some ways that's the signal phrase for the book, right? The idea, um, for a long time, I thought I was writing about contemporary gospel music, which is like the phrase people use to talk about gospel music written after 1969. Sort of, this is like using Edwin Hawkins' Oh Happy Day as a kind of, you know, like a Tristan chord for <laughs> gospel. Yeah. yeah, you know, like a, uh, a literal pivot, you know. <laughs> um, but I realized what I was really interested in was contemporary gospel music's preoccupation with various pasts and possible futures, right? And so at that's one level. The other is I just started to think about the way the, the songs occasion this traffic, right? In a gospel song, you could be in 2020 and in 
you know, AD 33 and in the eighth century before the common era, all at the same time. You could be in 1998's Detroit and the, you know, ancient Palestine and so forth, all right at the same time. So for me, it seems a bit contradictory to like engage a phenomenon for which wanted movement across space and time mm. is the most important thing using sort of, you know, traditional dash from 1969 to the present or from so forth and so on. Like that was not the point. Um, so if I'm not going to call it contemporary gospel performance, what am I going to call it? And what am I talking about? And how can I accent the like essentially theological thing happening? How can I accent the like, deep interconnection composition and performance and reception? And how can I link this sort of particular expression to the gospel tradition, which for my money is much older than a thing called gospel, right? Hmm. And so in the book, I sort of trace the idea of the gospel imagination back into the some of the earliest historical discussions of Black American music making, often you know derogatory. Um, um, and for me, the gospel imagination is this, right? The belief that musical sound can turn spiritual power into a physical reality. That's a great definition, yeah. <laughs> like, I want to I wanna come back to that and, and think more about that. But it, it might be helpful. I mean, I'm, I'm also curious about this kind of like how you got to where you are as a scholar. Um, like, I know that you're also a musician and a minister and, and like, how did you get in, how did you, what were your kind of early important experiences with gospel that got you on the path towards ministry? And then also later, I guess, on the, on the path towards, towards academia in the, in the music academia context. Got it. Well, I was, you know, a church kid. So I was always around and I was banging on stuff, you know, from the time I was three, I was banging on things. I think I got my first keyboard at five. I started piano lessons at seven. I started playing in church at nine. I was playing every Sunday at 10. Oh, wow. I was music director at 15. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, and where, this so, was North, was it North Carolina? This is, uh, yeah, yeah, this okay. is yeah, Northeast, Northeast of North Carolina, uh, a city called Rocky Mount. Okay, yeah, I know that. Yeah, located uh, half in Eshcombe and half in Nash County. Um, and so, um, so I cut my teeth doing that, right? I like, I trained my ear doing that. I remember, uh, you know, I was in, uh, I remember when I learned what secondary dominant chords, you know, were. I was like, oh, so that's how you go to D and give me a clean heart before you, you know, so you do this D9 before you go to five. Mm, okay, right. Like I learned tonal harmony, like mm. one in, in, in devotional services. Like it's one of the things like you would, you know, there were there was a choir, they prepared songs, you know, they'd be ready to go. But like the services started with devotion. I grew up Baptist and that's sort of a I mean it was not just Baptist, but like the idea of 
devotion and service as like two key components. Like it's been a, a Baptist practice historically, sort of falling out of favor in recent decades. But like people get up in devotional service testimony, tell a testimony, and they would start singing a song. They would sing some random song in B major, get to pick it up, you know? So, um, so like I learned to play by ear. And in order to make it through, you got to develop a, a deep sense of almost a kind of like embodied taxonomy of like, oh, this is that kind of song. Oh, this is that kind of thing. We're going to one here, then we're going to four here, then we're going to five or five. Then we're going to five. You're like, you might call it the two, the five, or whatever, you know. But this is one, then we're going to six. We'll come back up by chromatics, you know, back up to one. You know. um, so it made me think in serious terms about like syntax, basically. And then, of course, just like, you know, being at services and listening to older musicians and great people come through and like going up afterwards and like, can you show me that chord or you know, that kind of thing? Like I sort of just, I grew up with like this fascination with keyboard harmony. And so, so that, yeah, so that's the, that's the part of it. No, um, and then and in many ways like that, it's kind of an uninterrupted trajectory because for me, the biggest insights for my book come out of practice. Like the 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 Vance role as the sort of articulation of tuning up, the Vance close relationship to the shout, like all those things became clear to me in concerts or in things I was preaching, right? So as a kind of emic uh, sort of orientation that I would spend years trying to figure out what it meant, but like that moment, the flash of insight, mm. like feeling like, ah, this is important. Take note, don't forget. Those come out of practice. So they really are mutually, you know, nourishing streams, scholarship and practice for me. I mean, I want to come back to, to vamping because it's obviously so important to, to what you talk about. Um, but like, I, I imagine that there are a lot of musicians who have similar training to you and knowledge to you and, and wouldn't necessarily consider doing a PhD in music analysis um, because you have all the tools kind of available to you to, to make the music in a, in a certain way, right? Like, what was it about, like, going to, like, you know, it was, do you consider yourself, this is just kind of a stupid question, a, a theorist or a musicologist? Because, like, I was, it was a little bit ambiguous and I was wondering if you care, care whether you're either. Yeah, or. so I really... I kind of use lowercase yeah. musicologist. And I think I have equal interest in all three right. of the sub-disciplines. I'm also a composer. Well, and you just won an <laughs> ethnomusicology prize. So. Exactly, yeah. So for what it's worth, um, yeah. I, I, yeah, I, I think interdisciplinarity really is the bread and butter of my work, Right. Um, both in music and beyond. I'm working on a talk now. I've got to give it in a couple of weeks, but I'm going to try and drive on it this afternoon in my grad seminar. And I mean, I'm reading theology, hmm. media theory, homiletics, you know, straight up philosophy, um, you know, um, trying to put it all together, right? Um, yeah. And that's just sort of how I think. Um, but yeah, to get back to the, the yeah. why, the why the grad why, school yeah. question, I guess I, I just have nerd, you know what I mean? So that's, 
that's part of it. Um, Did you say you're a nerd? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> In case you didn't know. It's like the answer um, to everyone. Why, why we go to grad school, right? Right. Um, but I think it was, I mean, just sitting in undergraduate music theory courses at, at Duke, um, thinking, hmm, this is cool. But like, if I look in the library, I can't really find much on gospel, right? Hmm. Uh, and I think like having a burgeoning sense of an enduring scholarly lacuna, right? Right, right. Uh, and, and, you know, like having supportive professors and like, well, you could write your paper on this, you could do this on that. And so, so it gradually came into view. Um, then my second year I applied for, and I got the Miller Mays Undergraduate Research Fellowship, which is an amazing program, right? Designed and funded by the uh, Mellon Foundation uh, to diversify the professoriate. Um, and the resources that they offer are really astounding. You know, conferences and mentoring, like you do summer research projects oh, from the summer after your sophomore year of college oh my God. through, you know, you write an honors thesis, they support you with that, your conference papers. I mean, if you look at the ranks of black, but also other, you know, underrepresented minority faculty under 40, Across the across the country, I think you'd be shocked at the percentage of them that are Melanie's fellows, like across disciplines, uh, especially the humanities and social sciences. So I got sort of recruited into that, and that was really quite wonderful in terms of um, shaping and mentoring. And I had great mentors at at Duke: uh, Anthony Kelly, Philip Ruprecht, Brian Gilliam. You know. Um, and so I was very well supportive and they sort of pushed me forward, told me where to apply to grad school. Yeah. And I was dumb. I did it all straight through. I even did an MDiv while I was in grad school to boot, which I don't recommend, but I did it as I survived. So. Wow. You talked a little bit uh, a minute ago about the kind of lacuna around gospel in, in some of music scholarship. And, and you cite a lot of the important existing gospel scholarship. Like how, how did you kind of conceptualize what was missing and, and kind of how your work could help kind of fill those gaps in, in musicology, music theory? Right, well, this comes back to the, the, the biographical question. Hmm. My personal statement for grad school apps started off with um, a quote from um, I think it was like a composition concert or something like that, an undergrad. And one of my friends, he made it and he had a quote for every person beside their piece, you know, what the order in which they were going to be performed. And for me, the quote was, Braxton T. Shelley really likes that chord. Because <laughs> <laughs> in class, I would say, oh, yeah, I like that chord. You know, that's cool. You know, that's the kind of thing. So I actually started my grad personal statement with that mm. phrase, sort of worked out from it to talk about how that that idea entered my vocabulary as a young gospel musician, right? Like trying to learn chops um, and it animates my application to these grad programs um, and my desire to contribute to a fuller consideration of gospel, right? It's almost really simple, like to 
sum it up, it's just been very little analytical attention to the like details of some organization, right? Yeah. In gospel. And it's really important because the gospel's really extraordinarily productive, generative role for a whole host of American and popular music traditions, right? So like the fact that what gospel is, right, had been understudied, that contributed to, I think, you know, an underappreciation of, of gospel's um, primary place in right. the American expressive lexicon. Um, but I also think that, you know, I have the name Div and I am a practitioner. And so I think that in many ways, my scholarship goes deeper into syntax and deeper into culture, right? Because I'm not just saying there's a relationship, you know, between black preaching and gospel music. And I read all the, I read the homiletics books. <laughs> I say, you know, I'm like I'm making an argument about this homiletical musicality. Like I'm making an argument about, you know, sort of incarnational theology and time. Um, but also like, yeah, this, you know, minor six four chord, you know, is like, you know, functions as a uh, rhetorical hook. Jesus' body lifted on the cross, like the six and the four suspended over, you know, the, the, um, the dominant. So that was how I think about it. And, you know, I think that in some ways the, the prizes of late are in recognition of the lacuna being populated, you know? Let's talk a little bit more about some of the kind of analytical tools and and the vamp specifically. Um, can you talk a little bit about what is the gospel vamp versus just any old vamp and, and kind of how, how you see it functioning in the context of the gospel imagination? Right, well, vamps can show up anywhere, right? I mean, it's about a certain like iterative quality, right? Um, you know, about spending a lot of time doing something that has a kind of musical economy. What makes the gospel vamp different is its primacy and its importance, right? In gospel, you have anything but vamp till ready, right? You know, gospel is anything but a background for some other more important musical event, right? In the gospel song, the vamp is the main event the vamp, and so that's the signal distinction, that the vamp is the thing the song is trying to get to, oh, as opposed yeah, that, to that just clicked in being in yeah, yeah, yeah. an interstitial space, right? Surrounded by more significant hmm. musical moments. And the vamp is important because of what it does, right? It allows for this transformation I talked about for musical sound to turn spiritual power into physical reality, right? Like, this is one of the big things I write about in the, the third chapter of my book, where I'm talking about words, you know? And I'm sort of dealing with affect or meaning, you know, and, and sort of, you know, often that they've been talked about in, in opposing ways. Some folks talk about affect as non-discursive, as immediate, as corporeal, and, I think that, you know, you can't talk about gospel songs without talking about power, without talking about the transformation of the text over time, but also 
it means what it says, mm. <laughs> right? Like this is one of the reasons that it matters. This is text and music, right? God's will has the same kind of unwieldy sonic force that you find in lots of traditions, but it's more immediate in part because it's more specific. We're arguing that this song is about healing. This song is about so and so. We're singing their song in Gilead, and we're going to sing it 40 times. We're going to modulate up by half steps five times, you know? You can't say that nothing has changed about performance. You can't call that non-affective, right? Mm. You also can't say that the meaning ceased to matter, right? And so what I talk about is, is the experience of power. Just to say that power is held together by a dialectic of affect and meaning. Musically, like, so you have this kind of escalation happening, right? You talk about with, with escalating music and then a kind of escalating response. And can you talk through some of the kind of textural shifts in a typical kind of like vamping moment um, and, and how that affects all of this? Yeah, well, one thing that might happen is it's a textural accumulative vamp where, um, you know, instead of being in unison or in, you know, sort of ordinary homophonic choral harmony, the, the vamp will become polyphonic and the vamp will be built slowly like a jigsaw puzzle, you know. And the parts will gradually come into focus. Harmony will gradually, you know, um, become clearer. Um, that's one example. Um, another treasure technique is called inversion, where you just revoice the things, you revoice the choral parts higher. So the sopranos take the previous tenor part and a higher octave, the altos take the previous soprano part, tenors take the previous alto part. You do it multiple times. Like whatever the process is in the vamp, both the process and the material need to be repeated, right? Like you wouldn't. You wouldn't just modulate in a vamp by semitone just one time, hmm. right? You might modulate in a bridge or a verse one time, but if, if this is going to be a modulating vamp, then it needs to be repeatedly modulated, repeatedly inverted, you know, so that you get this really powerful amplification of repetition of process times repetition of material. The way like the way that you talk about the effects of this music or i don't even know if it, the effects of this music is the right word because it's so it's like hap it, yeah but it's just like happening and everyone is involved in it and there is something happening that is spiritual and divine that seemingly that the people who are engaged in this music all all, all feel i guess communally um like it, it that's something that i think that a lot of scholars maybe don't either don't feel comfortable grappling with it or don't even deal with because they don't sacred music is not even necessarily a topic that's engaged in and i think all of that kind of embodied quality um like the the example that i'm thinking of is which we we're kind of talking about too is like you, you quote a woman who who talks to you in one of your articles about a holy ghost chord and like the idea that a chord can be synonymous uh this is i'm paraphrasing you like a, a chord is synonymous with some kind of divine power like how do you grapple with how do you find the tools to grapple with that idea and like how how do you feel like it fits or doesn't fit within how we analyze how scholars generally kind of analyze music sorry that's like a meandering question but 
Yeah. Well, it's in some ways the bigger question is, you know, like, is it an odd fit? Am I trying to demystify this music by showing how it works? Right? Have I robbed it of something if I show that it works in this way because of these musical procedures, right? To me, that's the bigger question. And so I'm clear, right? I'm not saying there's no there there. I'm not saying there's no magic, right? Like I think I'm with, you know, I think all objects have a certain magic, right? That there's something, you know, undeniably unwieldy about sound. Um, and that we have to leave room, you know, for the space between our explanatory value and music's effects. That's it. This belief in sound as a conduit of holy power means that the manipulation of musical sound can acquire an unusual kind of force. To the one we're talking about in modulation, we're not just talking about modulation, we're talking about literal, like, elevation of a lot of people, right? Um, so in a way, the seriousness with which people approach sound makes musical analysis more important, more valid, more revelatory. Because its effects are so immediate and profound. Exactly. Yeah. Do you, like, who do you see as the kind of key audiences for this contribution? I mean, it's obviously a contribution to, to music scholarship. Like, what do you, do you hope that it also brings something to gospel congregations, gospel musicians, or sorry, black congregations, gospel musicians? I do. I do. And, um, and I hope that it speaks also to, you know, folks in disciplines like religious studies, African-American studies, American studies, so forth and so on. Now there is a tension here that I have to really think about a lot, which is that if my contribution is adding music detail to it, am I like limiting the readership? And so I think what I've decided is I'll just write different kinds of things. Not everything is going to have 96 musical examples like my book does. You know, not everything's going to have Roman numerals and every, you know, like some things like the ratio of like analytical detail will be variable. So that over the course of a career, you can have lots of conversations with lots of people. As, I mean, kind of related, like as you've been, are, do you still regularly perform? church services yeah except for the new pandemic yeah yeah (laughs) well well, pandemic aside like as you've uncovered these ideas and and discovered them i guess for yourself how do you do you think about them in the context like has your musicianship in the context of of the church 
changed since grad school? Like, how, how do you kind of incorporate or do you shy away from incorporating all of these kind of like new intellectualized ways of approaching this um, into, into your musicianship? That's a good question. And I think that I just become a better musician and a better preacher the more, the, the more I understand it. Those are actually all my questions. Thank you so much. This was, wow. I, I learned a lot, yeah. Yeah, well, thanks for reading my stuff and, you know, for having me on. I'm very grateful to Braxton Shelley, who is the Stanley A. Marks and William H. Marks Assistant Professor of Music at the Radcliffe Institute and Assistant Professor of Music in the Harvard Faculty of Arts and Sciences for that great conversation. You can check out links to more of his work over at our website, soundexpertise.org, and keep an eye out for his book, Healing for the Soul, Richard Smallwood, The Vamp, and the Gospel Imagination, which is out this month with Oxford University Press. Many thanks to my great producer, D. Edward Davis. If you liked his theme music, which I personally believe does truly slap, you can check out more of his work on SoundCloud at Warm Silence. Tweet at me about today's episode or anything else that's on your mind at Seated Ovation, and check out my new book at williamrobin.com industry. Next week, we're going to be talking about diversifying music theory with Ellie Hisama. See you then.